reading from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined for us, us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with, in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. Almighty Father, uh, we ask that you will uh, work in us by your Holy Spirit in the same way that you worked in Cornelius uh, in that story, um, that you would uh, fall upon us, that you would make Jesus uh, clear and compelling to us, and that you will apply your word specifically to every one of us in the unique way that um, each of us needs. So we look to you and not ourselves. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, um, please keep the Ephesians reading in front of you. Actually, you're going to need both the readings. So I think it's seven and eight. Keep those two pages in front of you. We're continuing our series in Ephesians, um, but I still can't keep Micah out of my mind. Do you remember Micah? Um, do you remember in particular the closing scene of the book of Micah? So if you weren't with us last week or last month, um, we were studying the book of Micah. And uh, Micah was an Old Testament uh, Hebrew scriptures prophet, uh, writing about 700 years before Jesus. And at the end of his book, uh, Micah, so to speak, is sitting in the wreckage of his nation. Um, his nation hadn't completely collapsed yet, but it was well on its way. And Micah, the prophet of uh, Israel, is, is just looking at the wreckage that is all around him. And there's something terribly, terribly tragic about the story. If you were with us last month, you will remember. However, however, Despite all the wreckage that is around Micah at the close of the book, Micah's story and his book does not end in tragedy. Do you remember that? His whole book ends with Micah 
looking away from the wreckage around him and looking at his God and kind of rediscovering his God. He, he rejoices and he celebrates and he delights in God and he praises God. And he, at the end of the book, he says, who is like the Lord our God? In fact, the name, his name, Micah, means who is like the Lord? Who is like our God, says Micah. He's full of mercy. He's full of love. The point is, Micah rediscovers God right in the wreckage of his nation. Now, I've mentioned this before several times over the last few weeks, but I want us to keep it, as, keep it in mind because Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which is our focus now, kind of picks up where Micah leaves off. Now, my, uh, Paul in the book of Ephesians is not talking about the wreckage of his nation, although he is experiencing it. Don't forget, Paul is writing this letter while he's under house arrest unjustly. He's experiencing the wreckage of his world, but he's the, his suffering is not the focus of Ephesians. The focus of Ephesians is God, but it's a little bit like this. It's kind of like Paul takes Micah's glimpse of God's beauty there at the end of the book of Micah. And then Paul says, let me zero, uh, zoom in on that view of God. And then let me add to the picture. Let me fill in some of the things that's missing. And that's why Ephesians is such a, ge a gift to Emmanuel today. Because everybody here knows uh, that we are surrounded by wreckage. Um, everybody knows that there is fear and there is tension. Uh, nobody knows what's going to happen with the election and what all everything, all that that could mean. Um, there, there's a new wave of COVID looming. Uh, there's lockdowns in Europe and 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 all the other stuff, right? But today, Ephesians says, turn for a moment away from the chaos and look at God, or better. Turn and look at God from the vantage point of the chaos that we are in. And as we do that, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians is going to add to our picture of God. He's going to fill in some details. And a little bit of the detail that he wants to fill in is this. This is the way I'm going to frame it. God's best gift to us is himself. I want to show you that God gives himself to us unreservedly right in the middle of the wreckage of this life. And when God does that, when God gives himself to us right in the middle of the wreckage of this life, when he does that, we gain a first taste of heaven's joy. Let me show you what I mean. Take a look at the Ephesians reading. And I want you to focus on the last paragraph there in that reading, verses 11 through 14, but actually focus on verse 13. Take a look at it. And remember the context. The Apostle Paul is writing to a, a group of churches around Ephesus, and they are all majority Gentile churches. And he's reminding them how they became Christians. Verse 13, Paul says this, and you Gentiles who were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with this seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, look at those verses. Do you see the phrase, you were marked with a seal? Now, do you know what a seal is? 
Um, I'm sure you do. Um, as it happens, show and tell time, I've got one here. Um, this is my license. Can you see that? This is my license from the bishop uh, to, to, to act as a priest. And right here, you see this red thing? That is a wax seal with the imprint of the bishop. And um, bishops have been uh, using wax seals like this, I, I think maybe like literally since the Roman era. Um, certainly I've seen ones that are medieval and they look almost exactly the same, except it's vellum instead of paper. But anyways, um, bishops have been sealing, putting their seal in wax on letters like this to prove that this letter is really from the bishop. And they've been doing that for forever. Now that's Paul's image here. He's saying, when you became a Christian, God set his seal like a wax seal upon you and marked you as belonging to him. Now that was a shift in who, uh, who we belonged to. So we no longer belong to ourselves, we belong to God. We no longer believe, uh, uh, belong even to our family or even our nation in the same way that we now belong to God when God has placed his seal upon us. However, look back because Paul is saying something that is even more shocking. He says, you were marked with a seal, watch it, which is the promised Holy Spirit. Now, this is where it gets a little weird. The seal, according to Paul, that marks us as belonging to God and not ourselves or anyone else, the seal is the Holy Spirit. That is to say, the seal is God himself. God giving himself to us for forever. Now, that's a little shift, a little twist that we need to see because, you know, this seal uh, signifies that this letter is from the bishop, but the seal, obviously, is not the bishop. The seal's wax. It's not the bishop. It's from the bishop, but not the bishop. Paul's saying that the seal placed upon believers is not something other than God. God's seal upon believers is God himself, God's own presence, marking us as belonging to him. Now I can kind of hear, I can't really hear you, but I can imagine that somebody's looking at me going, yeah, you lost me. I don't see the point. Well, that's fine. Stay with me because Paul changes the image. Look at the end of verse 13. He says, you were marked in him with a seal, which is the promised Holy Spirit. And then he adds this, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Now pick up the phrase, the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. What in the world does that mean? Well, here's as simply as I can put it. When you became a Christian and you received the Holy Spirit, God seals you with himself. He gives himself to you. And his presence with you, when he binds you to him in intimacy and love and trust and loyalty, that intimacy with God is a deposit or a down payment or a first taste of heaven's joy. Now, I, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about heaven. Um, in my home, uh, we kind of have a little game that we play and we say, what do you think heaven's going to be like? And we have lots of silly answers. And um, uh, Amber and the boys, uh, they like to imagine that they're going to get houses that are made of, wait for it, popcorn. Um, and apparently the great thing is that you get to eat the house that you live in and it doesn't fall down, it regrows or something like that. Yet always more popcorn with lots of salt. Now, my preference is I just I just want a, a horse ranch with 
two great dates. But anyways, now we're being silly. But the real heaven, the joy of the real heaven is not going to be the stuff that we get when we're there. The joy of the real heaven isn't like cosmic retirement or a long vacation. The joy of the real heaven is the intimacy which we will know with God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all together bound in perfect love and perfect joy and perfect delight. And you and I were designed for that relationship. We were designed to enter into that love and to enjoy that love forever. And that's one of the reasons why all the relationships that we have in this life, good as some of them are, can never fully fulfill us. I was talking to um, an Uber driver yesterday about this, and uh, it was an interesting conversation. But we were making the point that, that, that even the best relationships in this world are sometimes, oftentimes, even when the good ones, they kind of fall short. And part of the reason for that, I was trying to make the case to him, is that we were made for a better relationship, a greater relationship. We were made for a relationship with God. And in heaven, when you belong to Jesus Christ, you will be infinitely satisfied in that intimacy in a way that you'll never be satisfied in this life. But Paul's point is that the gift of the Holy Spirit, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit drew you to begin to taste that love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And therefore, in a little way, to experience heaven's joy now, the moment you really start to know God. Now, even as I say all that, it still sounds to me a little too abstract or theoretical or distant. So we need to put some grit into this picture. And to do that, I want to show you how all of this worked in one man's life. The very first non-Jewish man to become a Christian. And for that, you need to turn over to the Acts reading. And I want to tell you the story of Cornelius. Now, when the scene in the book of Acts opens up, you've got Peter the Apostle, who is standing in front of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Now, that is an issue. Uh, you and I, we live in a uh, politicized, polarized environment. Everybody knows that. But what we know now is, let me just say, it was a lot worse then. Peter is a Jew. And this is literally the first time he has ever stepped into a Gentile's home. And, and he's not sure he wants to be there. And Cornelius, on the other hand, is a Roman centurion. And they're like, like the Roman centurions, that they were kind of like the bad guys. I mean, not entirely, but these were guys who, you know, like they crucified people. It was a centurion that was in charge of Jesus's crucifixion. The centurion didn't make the decision to crucify Jesus, but the centurion made sure the nails went through his hands. Now, consider, as Peter is looking at um, Cornelius, consider the cruelty of Rome. Consider the trauma that people like Peter, and Peter included, has experienced at the hands of someone like Cornelius. And then consider that Cornelius, even though he was, by all accounts, a really great version of being a centurion, nevertheless, just his participation in the whole of the system means that he certainly contributed to the problem. He participated in terribly violent acts, undoubtedly. And so Peter and Cornelius, they are, not, they are on opposite sides of a culture wrecked with violence and injustice and corruption and cruelty. They should not be talking to each other by all accounts. 
And actually, they're not really talking to each other entirely by their own choice. Because if you know the story that went before this, I can't go into it all the details, but basically they're only talking to each other because God sort of grabbed both of them by the scruff of their necks and dragged them together. Paul explains this more eloquently than I just said. If you look at Ephesians chapter one, verse 11, Paul says, God works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. And that's the only reason Peter and Cornelius are talking together, because God in his power and sovereignty has orchestrated everything so that they can't help but be talking to each other. Go back to Cornelius. And we need to be fair to Cornelius, because Cornelius was really giving it an effort even before this. He was trying to be a good man. He was doing all kinds of good works. But what here's an important thing. God, it turns out, was happy that Cornelius was doing good works, but he wasn't entirely satisfied by them. God had a bigger plan for Cornelius. God wanted more for Cornelius than just good behavior. Not less, but more. God wanted to give Cornelius God. And watch how that happens. God has orchestrated everything according to, the, to, the, to his purpose. He's orchestrated everything so that Peter, almost against Peter's will, is in Cornelius's house, which Peter knows is going to cause him trouble with all his friends. And then Peter realizes that his job there is to describe the beauty of Jesus Christ. And so he starts to describe Jesus. And he tells the story of Jesus. He talks about how Jesus preached and how he healed. But especially, Peter talks about how Jesus was killed and then rose again. And then comes the clincher. Look at verse 43. Don't miss this. Peter says, everyone who believes in Jesus, that is everyone who entrusts themselves to Jesus, receives forgiveness or amnesty or pardon from their sins through Jesus's name, meaning because of Jesus's authority. And that's the minute. That's the moment when everything changes. Don't miss this. This is the critical moment when God gives himself to Cornelius decisively. And it's, an, it's a dynamic that Paul describes in Ephesians. Flip back to Ephesians verse 13. Now, Paul is not here speaking specifically about Cornelius. He's speaking about what happens every time somebody becomes a Christian. Look at the moment. Verse 13, he says, when you heard the message, just like Cornelius was, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in that moment, you were marked with the Holy Spirit. God gives himself to us when we hear the message of Jesus and when we believe the message of Jesus. Now go back to Cornelius because that's when it happens. Verse 44, Peter has not even finished his sermon. By the way, preachers like hate being interrupted, right? In the middle of their sermon. However, God here completely reserves the right to intervene and interrupt a preacher. And as almost every time I ever preach, the prayer that's underneath all the other prayers is that God would interrupt the sermon. And that God would give himself, that God would give the reality the sermon is describing, that God would give that reality, that God would give himself to us 
as the sermon unfolds. And I love that God interrupts this sermon. Because as Peter is describing Jesus, God gives Cornelius the reality Peter's describing. Verse 44, the Holy Spirit falls on all who hears the word, who hears the word. And catch what that means. It means that the joy of heaven was interrupting the wreckage of this world in that moment. Peter and Cornelius should hate each other. And Cornelius, as good as his intentions are, undoubtedly he had contributed to the problem. The wreckage of the Roman occupation is everywhere. And yet God overcomes all of that, orchestrating everything to the counsel of his will so that Cornelius can receive forgiveness that he cannot ever earn his way toward. And then God gives himself to Cornelius in a decisive way that is for forever. And when the Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius, you can tell that the Holy Spirit has fallen upon him because, first of all, he begins to entrust himself to Jesus Christ. The message isn't just outside him, news from far away. The message becomes something that he personally trusts. And then as he trusts Jesus, he begins to love Jesus and he begins to love God and the limitless grace and mercy of God towards Cornelius in Jesus Christ ignites in Cornelius an explosion of love back to God. And we know all of that. You say, Jim, how do you know that all that's happening? That's more that it's in the text. No, it's not. I know it because Cornelius begins to praise God. He begins to extol God. He begins to rejoice in who God is. And the rejoicing and praising and extolling is a sign of the Spirit's presence. He loved God from that moment on for who God is. And the moment Cornelius began to praise God, Peter, whose sermon has been rudely interrupted, realizes something. To his joy, he realizes that he looks at Cornelius and he realizes that Cornelius is no longer his enemy. He's looking at no longer his enemy. He's looking at his friend. And not only his friend, he's looking at his family member. He's looking at his brother. Because heaven has broken into the wreckage of Rome. And when God gave himself to Cornelius, he reconciled Cornelius to Peter. God gave himself to Cornelius first through the message of Jesus and then through the seal of the Holy Spirit. And he was never the same. And he was counted among the saints to this day. And that's what happens when God gives himself into the wreckage of this world. And Emmanuel, I hope you can see why this is so important. Because there's no subtlety to the wreckage that is around us right now is there? It's not like hard to see. And you know all the things, the you know COVID and pandemic and election and uncertainty and violence and fear and all the wreckage is right in front of us. And there are times when I can't help but click on the next bad news. Like, but there's a danger. And the danger is the more I feed my soul on the wreckage that is around us in this world, the more I might subtly believe that the wreckage is what really rules this world and that the ugly of this world is what wins in the end. But Emmanuel, I want to tell you today that that is not so. It's not that the wreckage isn't real. Of course it's real. It's horrible. But it is not greater than God. And Cornelius would tell us don't just look at the, at the wreckage, look from the wreckage towards your God. 
And Micah would tell us, do not just look at the wreckage, look from the wreckage and look towards God. And the apostle Paul through Ephesians tells us, don't just look at the wreckage, look from the wreckage and look towards your God. Because when we do, we get to see that there is a sovereign God who desires to give himself to us and desires it so much that he gave us his own son and that Jesus's death purchased our amnesty and our forgiveness. And when you trust in Jesus Christ, in that instant, God gives himself to us yet further in the gift of his Holy Spirit. He sets a seal on you so that you belong not to yourself, not even in the same way to your family, not even in the same way to this world or to this nation, but rather you belong decisively to God himself. And he gives you in that intimacy a first little tiny taste of the feast of heaven's joy. And that's why 2020 is the perfect year for God to give himself again to us yet more deeply. So what does all this look like on the ground today? You know what it looks like, Emmanuel? It looks like praise. You see Ephesians, verse 12 and verse 14, repeated phrases, always look for those. Paul says that God gives himself to us so that we might be to the praise of his glory. Praise. Praise is what it looks like on the outside when God gives himself to us on the inside. Do you remember how Cornelius praised God? And that's how Peter knew that he had received God. Praise is what humans do when God, God's love floods our souls. And praise is the serious business of heaven. And it's a serious business of heaven that starts now, right in the middle of the wreckage. So therefore, Emmanuel, if God gives himself to us in the midst of the wreckage of this world, then we should respond by praising him in at least three ways. Here they are. First, praise God by trusting Christ as he presents himself in the word. Praise by trusting. Secondly, praise by resting. And thirdly, praise by trust, by uh enjoying God. Praise by trusting and resting and enjoying. First of all, praise by trusting. Some of us on the call are not yet Christians. Um, some of us do not yet know God. Um, we've heard the message, but it's still at a distance, and you have not yet surrendered your life decisively to Jesus Christ. And maybe just like Cornelius, um, you're doing your best to behave really, really well, and that's fantastic. However, being a Christian, is more than, not less, but more than just behaving well. God wants to give himself to you. And the only way that that happens is by uh, believing and trusting and surrendering yourself to the message of Jesus. Jesus died to take away your sins and to reconcile you to God. And until you surrender and entrust yourself to him, you're still living without God. And if living with God is the first taste of heaven, living without God is a little too much like hell. But when you surrender to Jesus Christ, God will adopt you and he will give you his Holy Spirit and he will give you that first taste of heaven, which will increase to all eternity and you will be counted among the saints. Surrender today. And many of us are Christians. And this text tells you to trust in Christ as he presents himself in his word, because that's how you'll grow. Remember, if you're a Christian, that you, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit when you believed the word. That was the way you got into Christianity, but it's also the way you get on in the faith. And the Holy Spirit has a lot of growing he wants to do in you. 
Uh, the, Lord, the Holy Spirit has a lot of transformation in store for you, and he will transform you as you immerse yourself in the word, always feeding upon the word day in and day out. Because as God's word speaks loudly to you, your trust in Christ will increase and your transformation into the likeness of Christ will progress. Trust. Christ as he presents himself in the word. And secondly, praise God by resting in him. What I mean by there is rest in his sovereignty. The world is bonkers. The world's crazy and scary. And none of us is in control. But I want you to remember that if you're a Christian, you do you belong to a very powerful God. Verse 11 in Ephesians says, you did not choose God, but he chose you. And he works everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. And he sealed you with the Holy Spirit. And that is a seal that does not let you go. Which means that you can rest in him. Not complacently, but trustingly. It means that you can trust and rest in him that God will ultimately use even the wreckage of this life to contribute to your salvation and your joy in him, just like he used the wreckage of the cross. So don't be afraid. Trust and rest in God's sovereignty. Your father is very big and very strong and he loves you very much. And lastly, praise God by enjoying him. You know, one of the striking things about the Apostle Paul is that he could praise God while sitting chained to a Roman guard. That's how he wrote the book of Ephesians, which is full of joy and it's a long letter of praise to God by a man who was incarcerated unjustly. And God is calling you and me to enjoy him and praise him in a way that almost defies the wreckage of this world. And I don't mean triumphalism. I don't mean that we pretend that, hey, everything's great. I'm amazing. And everything's going to be great. No, no. Actually, we need to weep and lament and cry out in the middle of the wreckage. But at the same time, with tears streaming down our face, we look to our God and we look to Jesus Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, with tears streaming down our face, we also praise his glorious grace right in the middle of the wreckage of the world. And in that day, in that way, as we praise God and his glory in the midst of the wreckage of this world with tears streaming down our face, we join with the angels and we join with the saints who have gone before. We join with the saints who are in heaven right now because all of them, when they were here, they wept the same tears we're weeping and their eyes were fixed on the same Lord that our eyes are fixed upon. And as we do that in our age, we will do the same thing that those saints did in theirs. We will speak to this world of a better story and of a deeper story about a God who gives himself to us right in the middle of the wreckage of this world. And as we do that, we will begin to fulfill our eternal vocation, which is to live to the praise of the God's glorious grace. Amen. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.